if you think that's exciting, how many of you get excited when you see something like this? All right, now, for those of you that are in the back, uh, it's an incentive to move closer to the front, but it's a, a roll of Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookie dough. Any fans of uh, chocolate chip cookie dough? All right. I, I'm a big fan of cookie dough in ice cream. And well, how many of you would rather eat cookie dough than actually the baked cookie? Are, any of you like that? All right. We, we've got a good crowd. Well, did you know that they put a warning label on the front in very bold print that says, do not consume raw cookie dough? I mean, it's right there. It's on every package, and we do it anyways. It's probably the most overlooked warning label, you know, in all of of history. And it got me thinking, you know, that we have all sorts of warning labels today. They're all over the place because, you know, the threat of any lawsuit over anything and everything, uh, there are all these warning labels. I found a couple of them that I thought I'd share with you. These are kind of clever. This is on a washing machine. Uh, It says, do not put any person in this washer. Now, how many of you in college prove that you can do that? I can get in that washing machine. Yeah, there's no problem with that at all. Uh, Check out this next one. It says, warning, touching wires causes instant death and a $200 fine. (laughs) And so not only are you going to leave the responsibility of your funeral to family and friends, but a $200 fine because you touched the wires. Uh, Here's another. Uh, This says it's kind of hard to read. Warning, the road crosses U.S. Air Force bombing range for the next 12 miles. Objects may fall from aircraft. You, you come to that road sign, turn around, all right? Go back the other direction. Check this out. This is on a pill bottle. Again, it's hard to read. It says, may cause drowsiness. Uh, alcohol may intensify if operating machinery drive with care. Well, notice it's for a dog, all right? And, and then this last one, I think, just kind of says it all. It, it, warning, using while stupid can cause serious injury. I mean, that, that just you can kind of put that label on just about anything and, and go on with it. Well, as we look at Philippians chapter 3 today, uh, we're going to see that Paul has a warning label of sorts uh, for you and me, for those of you that may call Jesus Christ uh, the Lord of your life. And, and we're continuing in this series called Shift. Uh, we're talking about, and we've been reading through, hopefully you've been reading through the book of Philippians with us. Uh, Philippians is a letter, it's an epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He, he wrote it to people like you and me, and he wrote this letter from prison. And it's so important to keep that in mind as you read through every word of this letter, that he's writing from prison, you know, he's writing from a place that he probably doesn't really want to be, You know, he'd rather be free, rather be doing other things. And as we study this book together, what we're doing is we're just asking God to change our perspective. We're asking God to change the way that we see things, to change the way that we we hear things, uh, and specifically today to talk about changing the way that we see things. And and for you and for me, I mean, maybe it's a particular circumstance in your life, a a really challenging time, a real challenging season. You know, what, what does it mean for God to give you new eyes or give you the new faith Uh, uh, to see things, maybe with a totally different perspective. And up to this point, you could say that most of what Paul has written really leans towards a side of encouragement. But today, his tone is going to really shift to more of a warning. So let's pick it up in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's how he begins. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Now, if you had to pick one word as the key word in all of Philippians, it's the word joy. You know, the word joy or similar words is used something like 19 different times, you know, in this four chapter letter. And joy doesn't mean happiness. All right. Joy, joy is more than happiness. And happiness is temporary. Happiness is based on your circumstances, but joy is greater. 
And joy rises above our circumstances and keeps us balanced, you know, no matter what's going on in life. Joy is something that God puts in your heart, and it begins and can only begin with a relationship in Jesus Christ. Like, that's the starting point. That's the foundation. You know, and joy grows as we learn to trust Christ, you know, with more things, to trust Jesus for all things. And so, remember again, Paul's writing this in prison. I mean, he's got some perspective here. I mean, he's maybe got a situation that some of you can relate to. I mean, he could have been executed at any time. He could have been freed at any time. But even while in prison, he's still got this positive attitude in him, this personal joy. Now, why? Because he's got Jesus in his life. Again, Jesus is the foundation, you know, and so therefore he's got greater perspective. Starting in verse 1 here, Paul starts out. He says, rejoice. There's our word. There's our key word. Now, rejoice in what? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, again, that's the foundation. That's the starting point for Paul. And he continues. He says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Now, Paul uses this word safeguard. And he's basically saying, hey, I want the best for you. I've got your well-being in mind, you know, when I say these things, when I offer this encouragement to you. And what we're going to see as we look at chapter 3 today, again, is a real shift in the tone of his letter. I mean, this is where the letter kind of moves. It shifts to more of a warning, uh, more of a warning that it's been up to this point. Now, why a warning? Well, you need to know that Paul knew that a whole series of lies and false teaching was creeping into the churches around the Mediterranean region. I mean, people were teaching that Jesus isn't enough. Right, that it has to be more than Jesus. And while these false teachings hadn't overtaken the church in Philippi just yet, Paul knew they were vulnerable too. And because they were young in their faith, Paul's going to take this opportunity to remind them of the most important truths. And so again, chapter 3 is a bit like a warning label. All right, And it's a warning label for these people, for these believers in Philippi. But as we look at it today, let's just be reminded that it can be a warning of sorts for us too. Verse 2, he says, Watch out. For those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He says, watch out. I mean, it's a warning. I mean, here's the warning label. He says, watch out for those dogs. I mean, 2,000 years ago, dogs didn't sleep in your bed at night. All right? You didn't get them groomed. All right? You didn't you know, take them with you in the car. I mean, dogs were despised and considered unclean creatures. You know, it wasn't uncommon for Orthodox Jews to refer to the Gentiles as the dogs. And so this isn't a compliment. Paul says, watch out for these evildoers. Watch out for these mutilators of the flesh. You know, I mean, it's got a nice ring to it. But what's that about? I mean, what's he talking about here? Well, there was a group of people infiltrating the church at the time called the Judaizers. All right. Now, the Judaizers were going around and they were teaching that Jesus is good, but that Jesus isn't enough that it's got to be more than Jesus. According to the Judaizers, if you were going to convert to Christianity, you needed to accept Jesus, but there were other things that you needed to do as well. And I just want to take a moment here and say, whenever you hear a teaching that says it's Jesus plus something, it should always be a red flag. Jesus plus something should always be a red flag. And that's what's happening in Philippi. These teachers, these Judaizers are saying, hey, you need to accept Jesus. But in this particular case, we're saying, but you need to be circumcised too. Now, why all of the talk about circumcision? Well, being a Jew meant you had to follow a, a strict Jewish law, uh, follow their customs. And one of the biggest obstacles to overcome was that if you were a male, at least, and a convert, uh, you first needed to have an operation. Seriously, like reason that. 
I mean, men, if you wanted to become a Christian, according to the Judaizers, you first had to have a medical procedure called circumcision. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up on WebMD or you can call your mom or something later on. But I mean, can you just kind of imagine how the conversations around this went? I mean, can you imagine a wife coming home one day and say, honey, I found this really great church. I mean, the, the, the people are really good. The, the music is great. You know, you can wear jeans at church and all this, but well, you need to know you, you have to have it. Are you kidding? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, there's probably so many accounts of men like pulling up in front of the building with their wives. Like, I'm not going in. I'll be here when you get done, but I'm not going in to the building. But this is what Paul's up against. I mean, he's given his life to preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He planted this church in Philippi. It's growing. People are trusting Christ. And in behind him comes this false teaching and these lies and these expectations with something like circumcision. And, and Paul knows better. And there's a whole history behind this, but Paul knows that you're not going to get to Jesus through a surgery. I mean, circumcision for the Jewish people, really, when you think about it, was what you can do to make yourself right before God. All of the effort, all of the responsibility is on you. You know, that if I have this procedure, if I follow these laws, if I do enough of the right things, then maybe God will love me. It's Jesus plus something. You know, what can I do to make God love me? And here's what Paul learned and what he's telling us and reminding us of today. You can't earn your way to God. You can try all you want to earn your way to make yourself, your life right with God. You can try and follow all the laws. You you can try and live free from sin. Uh, You can try and please him. You can try and love him all you want. You cannot earn God's love in your life. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift through grace. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by grace that you and I are saved. It's a free gift. His love and his forgiveness is a free gift from God to those who surrender their hearts to God. I mean, you can't earn it. And that was a challenge that Paul was up against 2,000 years ago, and it's a challenge even today to humble yourself, to realize that, to come to that point of desperation and realizing there's nothing I can do to earn God's love. And so Paul says, watch out. Watch out for these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh that teach anything else. And then he continues In verse 2 there, it says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now again, circumcision under the Jewish law was a physical mark that identified a male with the Jewish faith. But Jesus changed all that for us. I mean, He's God's answer to the problem of sin. God sent Jesus for sinners like you and me. And Paul here says that when you surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, this same sort of circumcision takes place in your heart, but now in a spiritual sort of way. I mean, it marks us and defines us. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you are marked forever. And it's why Peter could write these words in First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people. He's talking to followers of Jesus today, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness And into the wonderful light, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, what we're going to find out today as we read through the first portion of this chapter is that because of what Paul's experienced in his life, it has changed the way he sees things. He's got a whole new perspective in the way that he looks at life and faith in his relationship with God. I mean, for Paul, no. For Paul, he knows that it's all about Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something else. Jesus is more than enough. 
He is God's solution to the problem of sin. And while Paul's writing this letter 2,000 years ago, his words really have the amazing ability to transcend time because he's speaking to you and me today too. And so let's keep that in mind as we read through these next verses together. And he's got a warning. I mean, it's a warning label of sorts. And the first warning, which we see in Paul's tirade about circumcision here, is not really about circumcision itself. It's about legalism. Um, But if you're taking notes, write this down. His first warning is just basically this. Watch out for legalism. You know, legalism is substituting rules for the relationship. It's anything that it says that it's Jesus plus something else. You know, legalism says Jesus isn't enough. He can't be enough. You know, in this case, that's what the Judaizers were doing. It's what they were saying. They were like, so you want Jesus, huh? Well, first, you need to know that you have to do this, and then you have to do that, and you know there's a whole new set of rules, right? I mean, once you give your life to Jesus Christ, there is a whole new set of rules. Legalism is kind of like this. Suppose you're getting married, okay? Just imagine with me for just a moment, and you're excited. The big day is coming. It's all that you can talk about. It's all that you can think about. People don't want to be around you because it's so sickening to hear you talk about your wedding and, and what you're looking forward to, all these things. But imagine this. Imagine the week of your wedding, your spouse comes up to you, and they hand you a contract. And they said, you know, just kind of one last thing I want to cover with you before we enter into this covenant is I want to go over this contract with you because this contract will remind you, it says, hey, this is what I expect, you know, going into this marriage. And so it may say things like, this is exactly how we're going to spend our money and I'm going to need you to initial by it. Or, you know, it says, this is how many times each week I'm going to need you to say that you love me. Or this is how many times you can expect that we're going to have sex. Or this is how often I'm going to expect you to rub my feet. Uh, There are all these chores to do. And so these are the chores that I'm going to do. These are the chores that you're going to do. On and on it goes. And and they might say, well, do you think this is fair? But you don't think it's fair. That's not what you're looking for in a marriage. That's not what you wanted. That's not what you signed up for. You want to do things out of love. I mean, you want to do things, you know, in response to the love you've been shown. Not because of some list of rules that obligates you on your part. And so this list of rules doesn't make a relationship. You know, it makes you a prisoner. And that's what legalism does. And so Paul sees what's happening in this church that he planted, that he started in Philippi, and this teaching that it's Jesus plus rules. And he loves these people just enough to say, hey, watch out. Watch out for this sort of teaching. In fact, Paul has some experience in this personally, so he continues in verse 4. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, and when he says flesh, what he's talking about here is if, hey, if anyone has confidence in like following the rules or your performance or your effort before God, he says, it's me. He says, I have more. And then he goes on, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, you could say that this is Paul's religious resume. And back in the day, like this is an impressive religious resume, you know, for any Jewish person. And what he wants you and I to see is all of the work that he's done, all of the effort that he's made trying to make himself right with God. And here's what Paul is saying in essence. He said, hey, if rules could save you, I'd have it made. I'd have it all figured out. Each one of these things Paul lists has meaning and value, especially for the Jewish audience. I mean, circumcised on the eighth day, that's just what the law said. That's how you were to do it. Of the people of Israel, notice that he's not a convert to Judaism, but he was born into the faith. 
of the tribe of Benjamin, that's like the royalty of Israel. That's like saying you're a Kennedy, you know, today. That'd be, that'd be a comparison. Or a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he could speak Hebrew, he could speak Aramaic. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the spiritual elite, and there were never more than like 300 Pharisees at any given time, and Paul was one of those. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church, he was so anti-Christian, so anti-church before Jesus Christ. I mean, he could prove it. You know, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Again, he's just saying, hey, if the law could save me, if the rules could get me saved, and there were something like 613 laws that any Jewish person was expect to follow with excellence, Paul could say, you know what, it's me. Like I've done, I've made the effort, I've done my best to keep every single one of them. It's legalism. It's making the rules the priority. It's about what you can do to make yourself right with God. And for Christians... Legalism says it's Jesus plus something. Like, it can't be just Jesus. Like, there has to be something more to it. It's Jesus plus the rules. I mean, Paul has every reason to boast about his actions, about his background. Legalism was a challenge 2,000 years ago, and it's a challenge today, too. Today, we just say it differently. You know, we'll say things like, you know, I'm saved because I go to church every week. I've got great attendance. Or I'm saved because of the church that I was born into. I'm saved because of the particular translation of the Bible that I read. I'm saved because I pray before every meal, even if it is at McDonald's. I'm saved because I send my kids to a Christian school, or I'm saved because I don't use bad language, watch rated R movies, or listen to certain music. I'm saved because I dress a certain way or because I talk a certain way. I'm saved because I'm Calvinist or I'm Arminian. I'm saved because of what my church building looks like. I'm saved because I voted Republican or voted Democrat. I'm saved because I was baptized as a baby or because I went through confirmation. I mean, legalism is dangerous for Christians. I mean, we are at risk with this type of thinking too. And, and, and the other challenge is that we'll take statements like these and we'll turn them around on people. Especially if you're on the inside looking out, for those that are standing on the outside looking in on the faith or even at church or whatever, we'll say things like, you know what, you can't be saved because you don't go to church every week. Or you can't be saved because you don't read your Bible, because you don't pray. You know, you can't be saved because you listen to certain music or you watch certain movies or because of the way that you talk. You've got to get that cleaned up first. Or you can't be saved because you voted Republican or because you voted Democrat. Or you can't be saved because you've been divorced. Or you can't be saved because you cheated. Or you can't be saved because you're caught up in pornography or you've got an addiction to something like alcohol. You can't be saved because you're living with your boyfriend or you're living with your girlfriend right now. You can't be saved because you're gay. We'll say things like that. That's legalism. And at any time anyone tells you that it's Jesus plus something, that's just a very dangerous equation. You know, I mean, it's dangerous. You know, Paul says, watch out for legalism because you can't make yourself right with God. He does that work in us. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's not in your own effort. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He's basically saying, hey, Jesus is enough. It starts with Jesus. That's where it begins, and nothing else. There's a second warning he says, watch out for worldly distractions. I don't know about you, but I find that I am so easily distracted uh, from those things that really are 
with those things that really don't matter. There was an article uh, in the news this past week uh, that one of the fastest growing accident in the U.S. today, do you know what it is? It's something called distracted walking. Yes, you've heard it right. It's called distracted walking. One woman became famous when a security camera video at a local mall caught uh, her staring at her phone while walking through the mall when all of a sudden she tripped on the fountain wall and fell headfirst into the fountain. And, and she became famous. It went viral on YouTube. Uh, again, all of a sudden very famous. But, but it's serious because uh, Americans, we are distracted by our devices. I mean, pay attention to that. If you go out to lunch today, just look around and watch how many people, how many families, everybody's just kind of staring at the screen all the time. In fact, a New York ER doctor, Robert Gladder, said in this article that hospital, his hospital alone sees five to ten of these injuries every week. But the real tragedy, though, is when we miss out, you know, on those most important moments because of devices like these. You know, we miss out on some of the most important moments in our lives because we're so distracted and we miss out on a greater relationship with God because we've got our eyes on focus on so many other things that really have no significance or little significance in this world. I mean, we spend so much time worrying about other less important things. And Paul warns us about this, starting in verse 7. He says, hey, whatever were gains to me, everything I've ever done, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything. So he's talking about his pedigree, his upbringing, his education. He says, is a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. You know, your your Bible might say rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, you could say that whoever translated this particular passage was being very kind, all right, was being very polite to us because the Greek word that Paul uses here translated as garbage or as rubbish is actually the word skubala or skubala, all right, the Greek word skubala, which really means dung, excrement, dookie, you know, whatever you want to call it. But it's really much more harsh than that. I mean, we'd call it a cuss word today. I mean, imagine if you would a chariot, you know, spinning down the road and there's a bumper sticker on the back that says skubala happens. All right. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You know, it's very extreme, you know, language to make a very extreme point. Basically, what Paul is saying that everything that used to be important to him, that used to have value, that he used to hold more dear, he now considers garbage, scuba, next to his relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever had an experience in your life where it caused you to rethink your priorities? Have you ever gone through time or maybe a near-death experience? Maybe you have family members that have gone through such experiences. And when you come out on the other side, you know, it just causes you to reevaluate to the point where you might be able to say, you know, this thing that I used to think was super important, it really isn't important anymore. Seth Goldstein was a high school senior in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, running in a cross-country meet when a competitor, uh, someone just in front of him, uh, collapsed right during the race. And his first instinct was to run on by But as he passed, he noticed that the boy's lips were turning blue, uh, that his eyes had rolled back uh, in his head, and that he actually was spitting up blood uh, in this moment. And even though uh, this particular runner was in sight of the leaders at the point, he knew he couldn't pass by. 
Uh, fortunately, this guy had spent his summer as a lifeguard, so he stopped, assessed the situation, and immediately really just started taking control, saying, hey, you call 911, somebody get ice. And, and as the victim was shaking and convulsing, um, you know, Goldstein just kind of held him down and just encouraged him, but again, just sort of taking control of the situation. Uh, when the EMTs arrived on the situation, the EMTs uh, arrived on the situation here, Goldstein, uh, when, when he saw that they kind of had things under control, he asked them a question that sort of caught them by surprise at first. He said, hey, um, can I go ahead and finish the race? And they were a little surprised, kind of laughed about it, because just in that moment, they finally recognized that this guy was actually a competitor. And even more than that, that here's a high school kid that had really taken leadership in this particular moment. Uh, this article said that Goldstein went on and finished the race and actually got a standing ovation much later, longer after everyone else had passed the finish line. And he did it in the slowest time ever. But if you ask him, and what he says is that, you know, while this wasn't his best race, it's the most important race that he have, has ever run in his life because, you know, he realized that even though cross country was such a part of his life and, and for him great fun and great exercise, that compared to a human life, I mean, it's garbage, scubula. And I wonder how many times in my life, I wonder how many times in your life we miss out on the most important things because we're so distracted by those other things going on around us. I mean, Paul says, I consider everything a loss. My achievements, my family name, my title, everything that I learned, everything that I've hoped to be, Everything that I was born into, Paul says, compared to Jesus Christ, it's garbage. And then he continues, and this is perspective. All right, this is a shift in the way you see things. Look what he says in verse 10, right at the beginning. He just says, I want to know Christ. And this is a personal, experiential sort of a knowledge. This isn't facts, just facts, or just doctrine. Like this is to know him fully and to know him personally. He says, I want to know Christ. And can I just ask you, is that your first priority today? Like if you just right now, totally honest, no one else has to see, but were to make a list of the most important priorities in your life, would you, could you say that your relationship with Jesus Christ is first? That he is your priority. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. I mean, this desire to know Christ, this burning desire in Paul's life, I mean, it's just overwhelming to him. I mean, he wants to know Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings, to say, as he says, to become like him in his death in every way, to just know Jesus more and more every single day. Paul's not satisfied living his life for the worldly distractions. Are you? I mean, can I just ask you, do you want to know Jesus more? Or for you, is it just about money? I mean, is it just about, you know, saving up for retirement? Or the financial goals that are before you? I mean, do you want to know Jesus as your Savior and know Him deeply and live your life and serve Him? Or is it really just about whether your kid makes a particular travel team or not? I mean, do you want to know Jesus or are you more concerned with satisfying your sexual desires or a particular relationship? I'm just saying we're so distracted. 
I mean, every one of us is guilty in this. We get so distracted by these otherworldly things around us that in the grand scheme of things really don't matter at all. Compared to Christ, they're garbage. God wants to have that relationship with you and me. Like he, he wants that intimate, close relationship with you. Do you crave it? I mean, do you want that in your life? I mean, God wants to have it with you. I mean, that's why Paul is saying what he's saying. And another thing, another warning, last warning is that I really think he's saying watch out for spiritual complacency. Watch out for spiritual complacency. Look at verse 12. He writes, not that I have already obtained all this. He's saying, hey, I don't have it all figured out or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul sees the danger in spiritual complacency and he understands that God love, God's love is so great, it's so big, it's so powerful, it's so full of grace, it's so full of forgiveness that there is a danger that you and I will run up against as Christians to come to these places in our life where we think we're done. You know, that I, I, you know what, I got my ticket punched. I think I can just kick it into cruise control now and everything's sort of going to be just fine. I mean, that once we accept Jesus, you know, and His death on the cross for our sin, that again, we can throw it into cruise control or something and move on to these other things. And, And so Paul compares life specifically the life of a Christian, to a race. He says, hey, that's what it really comes down to. He says that the Christian life is all about forgetting what is behind. And isn't that good news? To put it all behind. And then he says, but hey, here's what it looks like. It's about straining toward what is ahead. I mean, imagine a runner. See that runner in your mind, that sprint and that close finish in the Olympics as the runner is straining towards the finish line. Paul says, that's what the Christian life is like. It's about always straining. It's about giving your best for what's ahead. I mean, that no matter where you are in life, he's just saying, hey, there's more for you. I mean, there's another step. There's an opportunity to grow. There's an opportunity to know, to serve, to become more like him. The Christian life is about straining toward what is ahead. It's pressing on toward the goal and forgetting what's behind. Paul sees a Christian life as a process. He says it's really like a process that we're made right with God when we surrender our lives to him and receive his forgiveness once and for all in our lives. But God's desire then is to take the rest of your life and my life and to use it to make you more and more like Jesus every day until he calls us home to be with him in heaven. I mean, imagine it like this. It's kind of like this. I mean, imagine you're in school and you go to math class or something, and on the first day of the class, the teacher shows up and just briefly teaches you about differential equations and to take the second derivative of a function. You know the derivative of the derivative? I have no idea what I'm talking about. Like Steve Wallen kind of suggested this would be a good example. But, you know, you know that if you just went to math class on one day and that's all you got in about 10 minutes, that you could somehow go and figure it out. You know that if you're going to be good at math, like it takes practice. I mean, it's something that you really have to work at. Or imagine having your wedding, right? And you and your spouse, again, you're there on your wedding day and you've got a great ceremony and a great party afterwards and... You know, there's some cake, there's some dancing, there's some good times. But then at the end of the reception, you both go your separate ways and you go back living in separate apartments. Like imagine trying to do marriage or life like that when you're 
not practicing what it means to be a good husband and not practicing what it means to be a good wife because you know marriage takes a lot of practice. That's what Paul's saying about spiritual complacency. It's easy to fall into this mindset that, okay, I'm a Christian, so I'll just check it off my list now. And it is true that the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life is to invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. That's the greatest decision you can ever make. But it's not the last one you'll make. Because the of because of that decision i mean you could say you know you you become a christian but guess what i mean living your life more and more like jesus every day which is god's desire for you it takes a lot of practice so paul says forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead i press on toward the goal to win the prize for which god has called me heavenward in christ jesus it's a race your life and my life with God, it's like a race, and it's a race toward the finish line. You know, the story is told uh, of the filming of the movie Ben-Hur, and I'm guessing that maybe some or many of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur. Uh, at the time it was made, it was the most expensive motion picture made in all of history. In 1958, just to give you some perspective here, it cost $15 million to make. And, of course, the most famous scene in the movie is the famous chariot scene uh, where a lot of the budget for this particular movie actually went. Um, The great actor Charlton Heston plays in the movie the uh, character Judah Ben-Hur, and he had to learn to drive his chariot uh, for this particular and very important movie scene. And as the day for this particular filming of this scene came, um, well, this article says that Heston went to the famous film director at the time, Cecil B. DeMille, and he told him, hey, I think I can drive the chariot, but I don't know if I can win the race. And DeMille reportedly looked at Heston and he said, hey, if you take care of driving the chariot, I'll make sure you win the race. And I just think what a great picture of what it means for you and me to press forward to strain what's towards ahead, to to reach for the goal in Jesus Christ. I mean, we we just do what we can, never complacent, always moving forward, trying to do more. And Jesus says to us, you just drive and I'll make sure you win the race. I've got this. You're my child. I love you. I created you. I am the Lord God Almighty and I will make sure that you do not fail. I won't let you down. You just keep moving forward forward, straining toward what's ahead. How about you? Are you pressing on today? Are you straining toward the goal, the prize that we have in Jesus Christ, the prize that he has called us to heavenward? Here's what I believe that God wants to say to us through this text. Watch out for the dangers of legalism. Don't get wrapped up in all of the rules. You know, here's what I can do or here's what I need to do to perform to make myself right with God and miss the power of knowing Christ. You know, don't get distracted by a bunch of dung or scuba and miss the glory and the power of knowing Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And watch out for spiritual complacency. I mean, don't get comfortable spiritually. I mean, if you're not dead, you're not done. God's not finished with you yet. And He wants to do more through you and He wants you to press on, you know, for the things that last to win the prize of glorifying Christ with every single bit of your life in all things. And he'll help you do it. And he'll help me do it. If we'll surrender to him, if we'll stay surrendered, if we'll stay humble. Let's pray.
Uh, God, we thank you for these words today. We thank you uh, for this encouragement and even for a warning like this that 2,000 years later is still true and can make a difference in anything and everything. God, I believe and I'm trusting that you're working uh, in ways that I can't understand, that I can't make happen in people's lives today. And, and as we think about something like legalism and watching out for legalism, you know, maybe that has everything to do with your attitude towards others right now and how you see faith and how you see salvation. We just ask God to give you a right perspective on these things today, that to even shift the way that you see things, the way that you see other people who are far from God right now. But maybe for you, maybe the legalism is what you're trying to do to make yourself right with God or to please Him or to make Him proud. You're killing yourself. You're frustrated and discouraged. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus. Will you just reach out to Him today? I mean, will you start with that today? You know, again, he says this race, it is a race. We're not to give ourselves up to sin in this world. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying we need to lean on God more and more every day. We need to lean on his spirit in us to do those things that we can't do on our own. Will you just reach out for God today in that? And for those of you here today that are caught up in worldly distractions, let me just ask you right now, what is it that distracts you? What's taking priority over your relationship with God right now through Jesus Christ? And if there's something there that you know shouldn't be there, that you don't want there, will you just ask God to remove that today? And not to simply remove it, but to replace it with more of Himself. Say, God, what I'm looking for in these other things, these other things that have caught my attention, Will you help me just to find the satisfaction in you and in knowing you to live for Jesus? And if you're here today and you'd say, you know what, spiritual complacency is it for me. We just ask God to open your eyes today. Would you ask him to renew your heart and renew your faith? To make you alive once again. To give you joy. Joy that rises above all circumstances joy that says my faith is in God no matter what I face, no matter how difficult it may be. The scripture says forgetting what is behind, it's about straining toward what is ahead. In Christ Jesus, we can rejoice in Him and in Him alone. And as we pray, I just want to take a moment and recognize that there may be some of you here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know Him as Savior and Lord. And maybe you've been trying to earn his love, at least in your mind. Maybe you feel like you don't deserve it. Can I just tell you today the solution, the answer is Jesus. It's Jesus and not anything else. It's just surrendering your life to him. It's just coming to that point of desperation this morning where you say, you know what, I need him. And if that's you and that's where you are today and you want to invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, the good news is I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask you, if you want to invite him into your life, just slip your hand up where you are right now so I can pray for you. Just as a way of acknowledging that you're inviting him in. Thank you for that hand. Any others today, I'm not going to call you out. I won't say your name. Just, just pray this prayer with me. 
God, I need you. And I need Jesus Christ in my life. I'm opening up my heart to him today. God, forgive me of my sins. Give me new life in you. Show me what it means to forget the past and to strain and run the race for what's ahead. God, I thank you for this prayer today and for all these prayers offered up to you. God, show us how to run and to live for you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to celebrate a time of communion together. And uh, there's a great verse, just a few verses further into Philippians 3, Philippians 3.20, which says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, what a great reminder today that we are citizens of heaven. And we are eagerly, eagerly awaiting our Savior. And one of the ways that we do that is through communion. When we celebrate communion, we recognize, we announce in our lives and for others and as one church that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that He really is the Lord of all. Uh, We've got four tables, two in the front and two in the back. And in just a moment, I'll release you. Uh, The band's going to play. But as you go to these tables, you're going to find a cup, but it's really two cups. Uh, Take both of them, the crackers in the bottom uh, and the juices in that that top cup. But uh, you could take it back to your seat. And I just want you to know that as the band plays and as they sing, you're invited to take communion when you're ready. And, And what we say here at Genesis is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to take communion uh, with us. Uh, If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe just use this time to kind of ask some questions of yourself or maybe even what we've talked about today. I mean, what does all of this mean for you? But uh, uh, as you take it, as you hold that cracker in your hand, remember it's his body and what he's done for us, what he did for us on the cross, what he did for you. As you take that juice, it's a reminder of his blood shed for the forgiveness, for the victory for us all as we await that day that he returns. So... I want to dismiss you now at this time. The band's going to sing. Uh, You're invited to sing along with them. Do what you need to do. But let's go to each of these tables right now and celebrate communion together.